Section 10 of On the Nature of Things. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Eric DeSigo. On the Nature of Things by Lucretius. Translated by John Selby Watson. Section 10, Book 4, Part 1 I range over the trackless regions of the muses, trodden before by the foot of no poet. It delights me to approach the untasted fountains and to drink, and it transports me to pluck the fresh flowers and to obtain a distinguished chaplet for my head from those groves whence the muses have hitherto veiled the temples of no one. In the first place, because I give instruction concerning mighty things, and proceed to free the mind from the closely confining shackles of religion. In the second place, because I compose such lucid verses concerning so obscure a subject, affecting every thing with the grace of poetry, since such ornament, also, seems not unjustifiable or without reason. But as physicians, when they attempt to give bitter wormwood to children, first tinge the rim round the cup with the sweet and yellow liquid of honey, that the age of childhood, as yet unsuspicious, may find the lips deluded, and may in the meantime drink of the bitter juice of the wormwood, and though deceived, may not be injured, but rather, recruited by such a process, may recover strength. So now I, since this argument seems, in general, too severe and forbidding to those by whom it has not been handled, and since the multitude shrink back from it, was desirous to set forth my chain of reasoning to thee, O Memmius, in sweetly speaking Pyrian verse, and, as it were, to tinge it with the honey of the muses, if perchance, by such a method, I might detain thy attention upon my strains, until thou gainest a knowledge of the whole nature of things, and perceivest the utility of that knowledge. But since I have demonstrated of what nature the primordial atoms of all things are, and with how different figures distinguished they fly spontaneously through space, actuated by motion from all eternity, and in what manner all things may severally be produced from them, and since I have shown what is the nature of the soul, and from what substances it derives its vigor, in its connection with the body, and in what way, being separated from it, it returns to its original elements. I shall now begin to treat of another subject, which is of the greatest concern to these inquiries, namely, that there exist those shapes which we call images of things, shapes which, being separated, like membranes, from the surface of the bodies of objects, flit hither and thither through the air, and which same shapes, not only occurring to us when awake, startle our minds, but also alarm us in sleep.
when we often seem to behold strange forms and specters of the dead, that frequently, when we are torpid in slumber, rouse us with horror. I say that these are images thrown off the bodies of objects, that we may not, by any possibility, suppose that souls escape from Acheron, or that shades of the dead hover about among the living, or that any portion of us can be left after death when, after the body and substance of the soul have been disunited, they have suffered disillusion into their respective elements. I affirm, then, that thin shapes and figures of objects are detached from those objects, from the surface, I mean, of their bodies, shapes which are to be designated, as it were, their pellicle or bark, because each image bears the likeness and form of that object, whatsoever it be, from whose surface it is detached and seems to wander through the air. This fact any one, with however dull an intellect, may understand from what follows. In the first place, since many bodies, among objects manifest before our eyes, send off, when disunited, various particles from their substance, partly diffused and subtle, as wood discharges smoke and fire heat, and partly more close and condensed, as whenever grasshoppers in summer lay aside their thin coats, and when calves at their birth cast the membrane from the surface of their bodies, and likewise when the slippery snake puts off his garment among the thorns, for we frequently see the briars gifted with their spoils. Since these things, I say, take place, a thin image may naturally be detached from bodies, that is to say, from the extreme surface of bodies. For why those substances which are more dense should more readily fall away and recede from bodies than these shapes which are light and subtle, it is quite impossible to tell, especially when there are numberless minute particles on the surface of objects which may be thrown off in the order in which they have lain, and keep the outline of their figure, and this so much the more easily as, being comparatively few, and placed on the outmost superficies, they are less liable to be obstructed. For assuredly, we not only see many particles discharge themselves, and become detached, as we said before, from the middle and inward parts of bodies, but we observe also color itself frequently fly off from their surfaces, and this effect yellow, red, and purple curtains publicly exhibit when, stretched across the vast theaters, displayed over the poles and beams, they fluctuate with a tremulous motion, for they then tinge the assembly on the benches and the whole face of the scene beneath, the persons of senators, matrons, and gods, and vary them with their own color. And the more the walls of the theater are shut in around, 
so much the more all these objects within suffused with the hue of the curtains the light of day being affected with it smile and look gay when the curtains therefore send off color from their surface all other objects may naturally send off subtle images for it is from the superficies that both emit there are therefore we must believe certain outlines of figures which formed of a subtle texture fly abroad and which nevertheless cannot at the time that they are separated from bodies be individually discerned by the eye besides if all odor smoke vapor and other similar substances fly off from bodies in a scattered manner it is because while rising from within they are as they issue forth broken by winding passages nor are there any direct openings of the orifices by which they strive as they spring up to fly out but on the other hand when a thin coat of color from the surface is thrown off there is nothing that can scatter it since being placed on the very superficies it lies in readiness to fall off unbroken moreover whatever images appear to us in mirrors in the water and in any bright object their substance since they are distinguished by a form similar to their objects must necessarily consist in forms thrown off from those objects for why those grosser consistencies as smoke and vapor which many bodies obviously send forth from their substance should more readily detach themselves and recede from objects than those which are thin and subtle there is no possibility of telling there are therefore we may believe thin images of the forms of bodies and unlike those of a grosser nature which though no one can see them severally thrown off yet being thrown off and repelled by successive and frequent reflections from the flat surface of mares strike the eye and produce sight nor can shapes of bodies be imagined by any other means to be so accurately preserved as that forms corresponding to each should be represented to us give me now your attention further and learn of how subtle a nature or substance an image consists you may imagine this subtlety in the first place inasmuch as the primordial atoms of things are so far below our senses and so exceedingly less than those smallest objects which our eyes first begin to be unable to distinguish but that i may make plain to you how exquisitely diminutive the primary particles of all bodies are listen to what i shall state in these few observations first there are some animals so exceedingly minute that the third part of them can by no possibility be seen of what size can any internal part of these creatures be imagined to be 
What is the globule of their heart or of their eye? What are their members and joints? How extremely diminutive they must be! What, moreover, is the size of the several atoms of which their vital principle and the substance of their soul must necessarily consist? Do you not conceive how subtle and minute they must be? Contemplate, besides, whatever bodies exhale from their substance a powerful odor, as panacea, bitter wormwood, strong-smelling southernwood, and pungent century, any one of which, if you shall happen to shake gently, and imagine how small must be the atoms that affect your nostrils, you may then the better understand that numerous images of bodies, composed of still smaller atoms, may flit about in various ways, without force or weight, and without impression on the senses. Of which bodies how fine a part the image is, there is no one can express, or give the due estimation of it in words. But lest perchance you should think that those images of objects alone wander abroad, which fly off from the objects themselves, there are others, also, which are produced spontaneously, and are combined of themselves in this sky which is called the air. Those images, namely, which, fashioned in various shapes, are borne along on high, and being soft in their contexture, never cease to change their figure, and to metamorphose themselves into the outlines of forms of every sort. This we sometimes see the clouds do, when we observe them thicken on high, and dim the serene face of the firmament, yet soothing the air, as it were, with their motion, as frequently the faces of giants seem to fly over the heaven, and to spread their shadows far and wide, sometimes huge mountains, and rocks apparently torn from those mountains, seem now to go before the sun, now to follow close behind him, then some monster seems to drag forward, and to obtrude other stormy clouds. Understand now, with how easy and expeditious a process these images are formed, and perpetually flow off, and pass away from objects, for there is always on the surface of bodies something redundant, which they may throw off, and this redundancy or outside form, when it comes in contact with certain objects, as, for example, a thin garment, passes through it, but when it strikes against rough rocks, or the substance of wood, is at once broken into fragments, so that it can present no image. But when objects which are bright and dense have stood in its way, as, above all, a looking-glass, neither of these effects happens, for neither can images pass through it like a garment, nor be divided into parts before the smooth surface has succeeded in securing its entireness. From this cause it happens that images abound among us, and, however suddenly, at any time whatsoever, 
you may place a mirror opposite an object. The image of it appears, so that you may conclude that filmy textures of objects and subtle shapes are perpetually flying off from the superficies of every body. Many images are therefore carried off in a short space, so that the production of these forms must naturally be thought rapid. And as the sun must send forth many rays in a short time, that all places may be constantly full of light, so, by a like process, many different images of bodies must necessarily be carried off from those bodies in a moment of time in all directions round about, since whatsoever way we turn the mirror to the figures of objects, the objects are represented in it of a correspondent form and color. Besides, at times when the state of the sky has just before been clear as possible, it becomes, with extreme suddenness, so frightfully overclouded on all sides that you might think that all the darkness had left Acheron, and filled the immense vault of heaven, so formidably, when such a gloomy night of clouds has arisen, does the face of black terror hang over the earth from above. Of which clouds, thin as they are, how thin a portion of their image must be, as viewed in a reflecting surface, there is no man that can express, or give in words such an estimation as would be conceivable. And now attend further, and with how swift a motion images are borne along, and what activity is given to them as they swim across the air, so that, to whatever part they move, each with its several tendency, a short time only is spent in a long distance, I will proceed to explain, though rather, if possible, in agreeably sounding verses than in many, as the short melody of the swan is better than the croak of cranes swept afar among the ethereal clouds driven by the south wind. In the first place, we have constant means of observing how swift, in their motion those bodies, which are light, and which consist of minute particles, are. Of which kind is the sun's light, and his heat, for this reason, that they are composed of minute primary atoms, which are, as it were, struck out, and make no difficulty to pass through the interval of air, driven on by a succeeding stroke. For the place of light passing on is instantly supplied by other light, and brightness is, as it were, propelled by successive brightness. Wherefore images must, in like manner, be able to pass through an inexpressible space in a moment of time. In the first place, because there is always some slight impulse at a distance behind them, which may carry them forward and urge them on. And secondly, because they are sent forth formed with so subtle a texture that they can easily penetrate any substances whatsoever, and, as it were, flow through the intervening body of air. 
Besides, if those atoms of bodies which are sent forth from within, and from the central portion of them, as the light and heat of the sun are seen, gliding over the whole space of the air, to diffuse themselves abroad in a moment of time, and to fly through sea and land, and to flood the heaven which is above, where they are borne along with such rapid lightness, what shall we say of those particles, then, which lie ready on the outmost surface of bodies? Do you not conceive how much quicker and farther they ought to go when they are once thrown off, and when nothing delays their progress? And do you not feel certain that they should fly over a much greater distance of space in the same time in which the light of the sun traverses the heaven? This also seems to be an eminently fitting example to show with how swift a motion the images of things are borne along, namely, that as soon as a bright surface of water is placed in the open air, when the clear heaven is shining with stars, the radiant constellations of the sky immediately correspond in the water. Do you now understand, then, in what a moment of time this image descends from the regions of the air to the regions of the earth? From which cause, however wonderful, you must necessarily admit, again and again, the existence of bodies which strike the eyes and excite our vision, and flow with a perpetual issue from certain substances, as cold from rivers, heat from the sun, spray from the waves of the sea, which is the consumer of walls round the shore, nor do various voices cease to fly through the air. Moreover, the moisture, so to speak, of a salt taste comes often into the mouth when we are walking near the sea, and again, when we look at diluted wormwood being mixed, a bitterness affects our palate. So evidently a certain substance is borne rapidly away from all bodies, and is dispersed in all directions around. Nor is there any delay or interruption allowed to the efflux, since we perpetually perceive it with our senses, and may see all objects at all times, and smell them, and hear them sound. Further, since any figure felt with the hands in the dark is known to be the same which is seen by day and in clear light, it necessarily follows that touch and sight are excited by a light cause. If, therefore, we handle a square object, and that object affects us as a square in the dark, what object, in the light, will be able to answer to the shape of it, except its quadrangular image. For which reason the faculty of discerning forms is found to depend upon images, and it seems that no object can be distinguished by the eye without them. Now those images of objects, of which I am speaking, are carried in every direction, and are thrown off so as to be distributed on all sides. But, because we can see only with our eyes, 
it therefore happens that whatsoever way we turn our sight all objects on that quarter strike on it with their shape and color and the image causes us to see and gives us means to distinguish how far each object is distant from us for when it is sent forth from the object it immediately strikes and drives forward that portion of air which is situated between itself and our eyes and the whole of that air thus glides through our eyes and as it were brushes the pupils gently and so passes on hence it comes to pass that we see how far distant each object is and the more air is driven before the image and the longer the stream of it that brushes through our eyes the farther each object seems to be removed from us these effects you may be sure are produced with an exquisitely rapid process so that we see what the object is and at the same time how far it is distant in these matters it is by no means to be accounted wonderful why when those images which strike the eyes cannot be severally discerned the objects themselves from which they proceed are perceived for in like manner when the wind strikes upon us by degrees and when sharp cold spreads over us we are not wont to perceive each first and successive particle of that wind and cold but rather the whole together and we then perceive as it were blows inflicted upon our body as if some substance were striking us and producing in our frame a sense of its force which is without us besides when we strike a stone with our finger we touch the very extreme superficies of the stone and the outside color and yet we do not feel that color with our touch but rather perceive the hardness of the stone deeply seated within its substance. And now learn, in addition to this, why the image of an object in a mirror is seen beyond the mirror, for certainly it seems extremely remote from us. The case is the same as with those objects which are plainly seen out of doors, when a door, standing open, affords an unobstructed prospect through it, and allows many objects out of the house to be contemplated. For this view, also, as well as that in the mirror, takes place, if I may so express it, with a double and twofold tide of air. For first is perceived the air on this side of the doorposts, then follow the doorposts themselves on the right hand and on the left next the external light strikes the eyes and the second portion of air and all those objects which are clearly seen abroad so when the image from the glass has first thrown itself forward and whilst it is coming to our sight it strikes and drives forward the air which is situate between itself and the eyes, and causes us to perceive all this air before we see the mirror. But when we have looked on the mirror itself, the image which is thrown off from us reaches it 
and, being reflected, returns to our eyes, and so, propelling another portion of air before it, rolls it on, and causes us to perceive this air before we see itself, and on that account seems to be distant, and to be so much removed from or behind the mirror. For which reason, again and again I say, it is by no means right for those who study these matters to wonder at the effects which attribute vision from the surface of mares to the influence of two portions of air, since the appearance is produced by means of both. Now that which is in reality the right side of our bodies is made to appear on the left side in mirrors, for this reason, that when the image, which proceeds from our person, strikes upon the plane of the mirror, it is not reflected without a change, but, being turned back, it is so struck out of its former state, as would be the case with a mask of plaster, if, before it were dry, any one should dash its face against a pillar or a beam, when, if it should preserve, at that instant, its true figure as in front, or as when its front was presented to you, and should exhibit itself, or its exact features, driven back through the hinder part of the head, it will happen that the eye which before was the right is now become the left, and that which was on the left correspondently is made the right. It is contrived also that an image may be transmitted from mirror to mirror, so that five, and even six images, have been often produced. For whatsoever object in a house shall be hid, as lying back in the interior part of it, it will yet be possible that every such object, however removed out of sight by crooked turnings and recesses, may, being drawn out by means of several glasses through the winding passages, be seen to be in the building. So exactly is an image reflected from glass to glass, and, when it has been presented to us on the left hand, it happens afterwards that it is produced on the right, and thence it returns again, and changes to the same position as before. Moreover, whatever small sides or plates there are of glasses, formed with a round flexure similar to that of our own side, they, on that account, reflect to us images in the right position, either because the image is transferred from glass to glass and thence, being twice reflected, flies forward to us, or, again, because the image, when it comes forth, is turned about, inasmuch as the curved shape of the glass causes it to wheel itself round to us. Further, you would suppose that our images in a mirror advance together with us, and place their foot with ours, and imitate our gesture, which appearance happens from this cause that from whatever part of the mirror you recede, the images, after that moment, cannot be reflected from that part, 
since nature obliges all images to be reflected from mirrors, as well as to fly off from objects, according to the corresponding gestures of the person whom they represent. Bright objects, also, the eyes avoid, and shrink from beholding. The sun even blinds you, if you persist to direct your eyes against it, inasmuch as the power of it is great, and images from it are borne down impetuously from on high through the clear air, and strike the eyes forcibly, disturbing and causing pain in their sockets. Moreover, whatever splendor is strong often burns the eyes, because it contains many seeds of fire, which produce pain in the organs of sight by penetrating into them. Besides, whatever objects jaundiced persons look upon become, in their sight, yellow like themselves, because many atoms of yellow color flow off from their bodies, meeting and tinging the images of objects, and many of the same atoms are moreover mixed in their eyes, which, by their contagion, paint all things with lurid hues. But when we are in the dark, we see, from the darkness, objects that are in the light, because when the black air of the darkness, being nearer to us, has entered the open eyes first, and taken possession of them, the bright white air immediately follows, which, as it were, clears them, and dispels the black shades of the other air, for this lucid air is by many degrees more active, and far more subtle and powerful, which, as soon as it has filled with light, and laid open the passages of the eyes, which the dark air had previously stopped, plain images of objects immediately follow and strike upon the eyes, so that we see those objects which are situated in the light. This, on the other hand, we cannot do when we look from the light towards objects in the dark, because the thicker air of darkness follows behind the light air, which thicker air fills the pores and stops up the passages of sight, so that the images of any things whatsoever be involved in it cannot be moved forward into the eyes. And when we behold the square towers of a city a long way off, it happens, on account of the distance, that they often seem round, because every angle, being afar off, is seen as obtuse, or rather is not seen at all. The impulse of its image dies away and the force of it does not reach to our eyes, since, while the images of it are borne through a large body of air, the air, by frequent percussions upon them, obliges that force to become ineffective. Hence it comes to pass that when every angle has escaped our vision at the same time, the constructed stones are seen as if fashioned to a round, not, however, like round objects which are immediately before us, and which are exactly circular, but they appear, as it were, nearly, after a shadowy fashion, resembling them. Our shadow likewise seems to us to move in the sun, and to follow our footsteps, 
and to imitate our gesture, if you can fancy air devoid of light, to go forwards following the movements and gesture of men, for that which we are accustomed to call shadow can be nothing else but air deprived of light. Evidently because the ground, in certain spots successively, is excluded from the radiance, wherever we, as we go, obstruct it, and that part of it which we have left is again covered with light. From this cause it happens that what was the shadow of our body seems to be still the same, and to have followed exactly opposite us. For fresh illuminations of rays are perpetually pouring themselves forth, and the first disappear as quickly as wool vanishes if applied to a flame. By this means the ground is both easily deprived of light, and again covered with it, and discharges from itself the black shadows. Nor yet, in this case, do we allow that the eyes are at all deceived, for it is their business only to observe in whatever place there may be light or shade, but whether the light is the same or not, and whether the same shadow which was here passes thither, or rather, as we said before, a new one is constantly produced, this the judgment of the mind only must determine. For the eyes cannot know the nature of things, and, therefore, you must not impute to the eyes that which may be the fault of the understanding. A ship in which we sail is carried forward when it seems to stand still, and that which remains stationary is imagined to go by us, and the hills and plains, past which we row our vessel, or fly with sails, seem to flee away astern. All the stars seem to be at rest, as, being fixed to the vaults of the sky, and yet all are in perpetual motion, for when, after rising, they have traversed the heaven with their shining orbs, they return to their distant places of setting, and the sun and the moon, in like manner, seem to remain stationary. Bodies which observation itself shows to be carried forwards, and mountains rising up at a distance from the middle of the sea, between which a free passage for ships is open, yet appear without separation, so that one vast island seems to be formed from the two united. It likewise happens that to children, after ceasing to whirl themselves about, the rooms seem to turn, and the pillars to run round, so that they can hardly believe that the whole building is not threatening to fall upon them. And when nature begins to raise on high the beams of the sun, red with tremulous fires, and to exalt them above the hills, the hills over which the sun then appears to be, himself apparently touching them close, glowing with its own beams, are scarcely distant from us two thousand flights of an arrow, often even scarcely five hundred casts of a dart. Yet, between them and the sun, which seems in contact with them, lie broad expanses of sea, stretched out under vast regions of sky, 
and many thousand miles of land also intervene, which various nations of men, and tribes of wild beasts, occupy and overrun, and, to mention another ocular delusion, a puddle of water, not deeper than a finger, which settles among the stones in the paved streets, affords, apparently, a prospect downwards under the earth, to a depth as great as the height to which the lofty arch of heaven extends above the earth, so that you seem to look down upon the clouds, and to see a heaven beneath, and to behold, by a surprising effect, the celestial bodies buried in the sky underground. Moreover, when a spirited courser sticks fast with us in the middle of a river, and we look down into the swiftly flowing water of the stream, a force seems to be carrying the body of the horse, though standing still, in a contrary direction to the current, and to drive it rapidly up the river, and whithersoever we turn our eyes, all objects appear to us to be carried along, and to flow in a similar manner. A portico, too, although it be of equal dimensions throughout, and standing supported with equal columns from end to end, yet, when it is viewed from the extremity through its whole length, contracts gradually, as it were, to the apex of a tapering cone, joining the roof to the floor, and all the right-hand parts to the left, until it has narrowed itself to the indistinct point of the cone. To sailors at sea it occurs that the sun, having risen from the waves, seems also to set, and bury its light in the waves, as, in their situation, they behold nothing else but water and sky, a remark which I make, that you may not lightly suppose that the senses are altogether deceived. But to those ignorant of the sea, ships in the harbor often appear to strive, disabled in their equipments, against the broken waves, for, though whatever part of the oars is raised above the water of the sea is straight, and the part of the helm above the water is straight, the parts which go down and are sunk in the water seem all, as if broken, to be turned and inverted, sloping upwards, and thus bent back to float almost up to the surface of the water. And when the winds, in the night-time, carry light vapors athwart the sky, the bright constellations seem then to glide against the clouds, and to pass along on high in a far different direction than that in which they are really born. But if by chance the hand, applied to one eye, presses it underneath, it happens, by some impression on the sense, that all things, at which we look, seem to become double as we gaze on them. Two lights in the lamps appear blossoming with flames. The twin furniture seems to be doubled throughout the house, and the faces of the people seem double, and their persons double. Moreover, when sleep has bound our limbs in agreeable repose, and the whole body lies in profound rest, yet, at that very time, our limbs appear to be awake and to move themselves, and we imagine that, 
in the thick darkness of night we see the sun and the light of day and though in a confined place we seem to change our position with respect to the heaven the sea rivers and mountains and to cross over plains on foot and to hear sounds though the unbroken silence of night reigns around us and to utter words though our tongues remain still other things of this class exciting our wonder we see in great numbers all which seek as it were to destroy the credit of our senses but they strive in vain since the greatest part of these appearances deceive us only because of the fancies which we allow to bear upon them so that those things which have not been seen by our senses are to us as if seen for nothing is more difficult than to separate certain from doubtful things things which the mind when their fallaciousness is discovered straightway rejects from itself moreover if any one believes that nothing is known he himself also knows not whether that can be known from which he forming a judgment confesses that he knows nothing against him therefore i shall forbear to urge argument who of his own will has placed himself with his face towards his footsteps and although i should even grant that he knows this i should still put to him the following question when he has seen no truth in things previously how he knows what it is to know and not to know in contradistinction to one another what cause i shall ask him produced his knowledge of truth and falsehood and what power has proved to him that what is doubtful differs from what is certain the knowledge of truth you will find is derived from the senses as its origin and you will own that the senses cannot be refuted for that which of its own power can refute false notions by real facts must be found of greater credit than to be liable to confutation what then must be esteemed of greater credit than the senses shall reasoning arising from erring sense reasoning i say which has arisen wholly from the senses and which can depend on nothing else be of sufficient force to refute those senses for unless these our senses are true and trustworthy all reasoning consequently becomes false and unfounded but what that is external to the senses shall confute the senses or will they disagree among themselves and refute one another will the ears be able to refute the eyes or will the touch refute the ears or will the taste of the mouth moreover refute the touch will the nostrils confute the other senses or will the eyes contradict them it is as i think not so for each sense is separately assigned its own faculty each has its own power and it is therefore necessary that what is soft and what is cold and what is hot should seem so and it is necessary also that we should perceive distinctly the various colors of things and whatever things are connected with colors 
the taste of the mouth, likewise, has its own power separately. Scents are produced independently, and sounds independently of the other senses. And it necessarily follows, therefore, that some senses cannot confute others, nor again will they, as a body, confute themselves, for equal trust must at all times be placed in every one of them. That, therefore, which, at any time whatsoever, has seemed true to them, is true. And if reasoning shall be unable to unfold the cause why those objects which, when close at hand, were square, have appeared round at a distance, yet it is better for a man, being partially deficient in reasoning, to give explanations of each figure erroneously, than by any means to let slip from his hands things that are manifest, and to destroy the first principles of belief, and tear up all the foundations on which life and safety rest. For not only would all reasoning fall to the ground, but life itself would at once come to nothing, unless you venture to trust your senses, and to avoid precipices, and other things of this sort which are to be shunned, and to pursue those things which are of a contrary character. That, therefore, is all an empty body of words, you may be sure, which is arrayed and drawn up against the senses. Lastly, as, in a building, if the rule is wrongly applied at first, if the square, being erroneously placed, deviates from the proper position, and if the level is in the least inexact in any spot, all parts of the edifice are necessarily rendered faulty and distorted, and become ill-shaped, sloping, hanging forwards or backwards, and inconsistent with one another, so that some seem inclined to fall, and some actually do fall, being all made unsound by false measures at the commencement. Thus, accordingly, whatever reasoning on things has sprung from fallacious senses must of necessity be erroneous and deceitful. If the senses be false, all arguments from them must be false. End of section 10, book 4, part 1.